Hello, and welcome to the TLDR Podcast, a show about the culture, business, and gossip of money. And this week, what is a vibe session, and are we still in one? My name is Devin Friedman. I'm here with my co-hosts. Matt Karaz is the markets editor of the TLDR newsletter, the director of product for Well Simple, which is our sponsor, and a guy who, is this accurate, Matt, that 90% of your friends are hedge fund people? No, but we can go with it. Okay, good. I say yes. And Kyla Scanlon. Kyla is from a town outside of Louisville, Kentucky, used to be a car saleswoman, and then worked on a high-yield bond trading desk, among other things, and has since become the smartest money person on TikTok. Is that accurate, Kyla? Oh, that's quite the compliment. Thank you, Devin. Good. I like to, like, pump you up a little bit more every week. (laughs) My ego needs it. Uh, And of course, journalist Sarah Rieger, the business and markets correspondent for the TLDR newsletter, who comes to us, as always, from the TLDR satellite office in her apartment in Calgary. Hello, Sarah. Hey, Devin. So we're going to start this show like we do every week with a really simple question, which is who is making and losing money this week? It is a question we ask, of course, because it's entertaining, but also because it's a way to get at the most interesting money stories of the week. Let's start with you, Sarah. Who is making and losing money in markets this week? So the big money news this week is going to be today's inflation report, which is coming out in Canada after you know this podcast comes out. The U.S. came out with its number last week. Basically, the headline was inflation is lower than people predicted. Um, Um, And the markets have had a decent-sized celebration about that. And I know we're going to talk about that later. So instead, I want to talk about a stock fail that I think is really interesting. Okay. So Toronto company Canada Goose is getting roasted right now. I have to stop and acknowledge the pun. Thank you. And Canada Goose, you are, of course, talking about the luxury parka company seen on the backs of people like Ryan Reynolds. Yeah, exactly. I feel like anyone can picture them. They have those kind of like um, sciencey looking logos on their sleeves, the big like fluffy hoods. So Juice is one of the worst performing consumer stocks on the TSX lately. It's down like 40% this year, which isn't because, you know, Canadians have stopped buying it entirely. Although at least in Calgary, I see like a lot more Aritzia or Mac usually. Um, But customers in China are actually huge Canada Goose fans. At least like a quarter of Canada Goose buyers are in China. But because China's economy is in a downturn right now, um, it's bad for Canadian companies that export there. The China downturn is an interestingly big deal for two reasons. Like one, you know, it's hitting the luxury market super hard. So Canada Goose, but also global retailers like LVMH. But it's also hitting like the other side of the economy as well, particularly like oil and metals, which is part of the reason why oil prices are down so much over the last couple of weeks. Yeah. And Canada's like three times as export reliant as the U.S. is because our population is so much lower. So it's kind of an indicator of just how much trouble we can get into when some of our bigger trading partners aren't having a great time. Okay, so big market stories right now are inflation down in the U.S., stock market rallies, and then... Chinese consumers are not buying luxury goods or oil as much anymore, which is causing a problem domestically. So Canada Goose would do better if there were more Canadians and they were richer, (laughs) is basically what we're saying. Yeah. So that's a goal. You got a problem with Canada Gooses? You got a problem with me? And I suggest that that one marinate. 
Matthew, who is making and losing money right now that's interesting to you? Airbnb has been pretty fascinating. They reported earnings earlier this uh, month, and they reported you know, that people spent about $18 billion on bookings through their service. They took in about $3.5 billion in revenue for the company itself. And even after their own costs, they took home about $1.5 billion in profits. And, you know, I find this particularly interesting, not just because of how much money Airbnb has been making, which has been going up a lot over the last couple of years, but also, like, how they've been making it. Essentially, Airbnb is just a middleman, um, and they take a commission on every transaction that happens on the site. And this is actually a pretty standard model uh, across the big consumer tech companies. This guy named Tom Goodwin had a now famous and pretty prescient uh, take on this back in 2015 in an article he titled The Battle for the User Interface. And in it, he observed that Uber, the world's largest taxi company, owns no vehicles. Facebook, the world's most popular media owner, creates no content. Alibaba, the world's most valuable retailer, has no inventory. And Airbnb, the world's largest accommodation provider, owns no real estate. It feels like there's a bit of a backlash building against that business model. I think a lot of people are starting to wonder, like, do I really need to pay this middleman to do something that I was doing before for less money? You know, I think a lot of the food delivery services, right, aren't, aren't they having a hard time making money? Well, I've heard all of that news as well. And... Um, you know, while I would imagine from the news that there's a lot of pressure on these companies to lower their take rate and lower the commission that they're charging, you know, it actually seems like a lot of these companies have been going in the opposite direction. So, you know, the best info that I could find showed that the take rate for Airbnb was 13 percent back in 2021 and is now closer to 20 um, and the, that the take rate for Uber was around 24 percent back in 2021 but now up big from there and closer to to 30%. And so my main takeaway is that while people might not like paying this much of a tax, you know, the convenience factor is really valuable. And, uh, you know, these big tech companies own, you know, what Tom Goodwin said was the most valuable real estate in the world, the real estate on people's phones. And that entitles them to, you know, a big chunk of these transactions. So there's this lawsuit going on right now, and revealed in the lawsuit accidentally was that Apple is taking 36% of Google's search revenue. So I think the take rate model is really interesting because it shows the power that these incumbents like Apple have to take a percentage of other people's companies, and it becomes this weird pyramid scheme almost. Tim Cook, boring guy, but manages to get his uh, hands into every transaction. But it's like, how much is this stifling innovation? Like, a lot of people don't want to build apps for the App Store because they're like, Apple's going to take such a big percentage of it. And it's kind of like, okay, Tim Cook, like most value, one of the most valuable companies in the world, maybe we could take a break here, buddy. I mean, the problem really is like, it, with capitalism, which is that it rewards people who become gatekeepers over people who provide things that are of use. Can I just say, I wish this podcast was a video format because as Devin said, the problem with capitalism, I just watch Matt closer and closer lean into his microphone. Yeah, I mean, Devin, I, I mean, I don't know if you'd rather, I don't know if you'd rather pay somebody to find something for you versus not have that thing at all. The, I think the beauty of our capitalism is that we can, you know, bring more and more of the world's, you know, stuff to you without having to you to spend all of your time looking for the it. The problem is what a lot of the world of capitalism is offering, the innovation that it's offering is like 
a new dog washing service with a cool interface. That's so jaded. Like every single stat about like human lifespan and prosperity basically goes up and to the right since we started the grand capitalist experiment. Like we have these wonder drugs so that you don't die from like dysentery. I don't think capitalism is responsible for antibiotics. I'm gonna, Dev and I are going to kill each other. I don't <laughs> <laughs> We start every uh, podcast recording with like a little sparring on capitalism versus something else that you guys imagine we should be doing because it really revs me up. I want you to deal with your problems by becoming rich. Gyla. Who is making and losing money this week that's interesting to you? Peter Thiel. So Peter Thiel has made a lot of money over the course of his life. And there was this profile published of him in The Atlantic. And the big takeaway for a lot of people was that money doesn't really buy happiness. So for context... Peter Thiel co-founded PayPal, which is meant to be this libertarian alternative to government currency in 1998. And then he co-founded Palantir in 2004, which is a data mining company invested in by the CIA. All of this went really well for him, enough to the point that he has a $6.6 billion net worth. So he did what every rich guy kind of does, and he got involved with politics. So Peter Thiel hates the government. But the really interesting part about this profile was that Peter Thiel wants to live forever, even though he hates the government which I feel like is kind of counterintuitive. And he's doing everything, all the longevity stuff. You know, he got Ozempic. He does the cold plunges, like all of the general health things that the tech bro populace does. Peter Thiel is doing as well. Yeah, it's just there's a real group think among people, it seems like, who have that much money, uh, especially in tech. And they seem all seem sort of obsessed with longevity and um, having the same face. I can't believe you didn't want to mention the uh, the fact that he wears a nicotine patch to try to raise his IQ by 10 points. There's so much. That is, that is pretty amazing. He's also considered the possibility of having a blood boy. That's such a horrifying phrase. But let me ask you, what is a blood boy? Basically, what a blood boy is, is somebody who you can get regular blood transfusions from with, you know, the hypothesis that it'll help uh, slow the aging process. So it's like medical vampirism. Mm-hmm. Cool. This is so dystopian, and I, I hate it so much. I mean, that's Peter Thiel's whole vibe. He wants a dystopia. Wait, Sarah, you don't have a blood boy? <laughs> Do you have a blood boy? <laughs> no, I'm afraid of needles. Kyla basically told me last week that I need to get a blood boy. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't it maybe true that we all think we would be so much better if we had billions of dollars, but that maybe billions of dollars turns you into someone like a weirdo and there's just nothing you can do about it? I I volunteer to find out if anyone wants to give me a billion dollars. I will test this and report back, I promise. I mean, my major theory about billionaires is that typically to become that rich, you not only have to be right, but really non-consensus. So right about something that everyone else thinks is wrong. And, you know, in order to actually actualize that vision, you need to not listen to other people. And so really just believe yourself. And then, you know, over time, after years of getting that feedback that like your view uh, is right when everyone else's is wrong, I think, you know, turns you into somebody who is just often really hard to be around. And let's also acknowledge that Matthew probably, I'm at least speaking for myself, has a lot more up-close experience with what billionaires are like. No comment. <laughs> uh, considering that he worked for one for a while himself at Bridgewater, the largest hedge fund in the world. No comment. Mm-hmm. 
So this is the part of the show that we call the whiteboard. The whiteboard is when Kyla Scanlon explains something important about finance or the economy or money, usually without taking a breath. And this week, Kyla is going to talk to us about the state of the vibe session, which is a term that Kyla coined and has since gone viral. Kyla, let's start here. What is a vibe session? Where does the term come from? So the vibe session was something that I wrote about back in July of 2022 on my newsletter, kyla.substack.com, <laughs> where I talked about this disconnect between economic data points and consumer sentiment. So it's this idea that economic data points can be doing great, good, fine, but people are feeling really bad. Okay. Vibe session is economy's fine, but we basically feel like we are doing badly. Our vibes are in a recession. And what's the state of the vibe session right now? So it's interesting. Unemployment in Canada is basically lower than it's been any time in the past five decades. Incomes are at all-time highs and rising. Inflation is falling back to what the Central Bank of Canada wants it to be. And Canadians are still spending a lot of money, but people still feel really bad. Consumer confidence is at all-time lows besides the pandemic. So the vibes are off. How people are feeling is off. Why? Why Why is that the case? What's going on? Good question, Devin. So like I mentioned, there are these good economic indicators, but at the same time, there are these genuine economic challenges that I don't want to skip over. Over one third of Canadians have had their mortgage payments increased since last year thanks to rising interest rates, and housing is incredibly unaffordable to anyone who doesn't have a home. Inflation may be slowing down, but the actual cost of most goods are still higher than they were pre-pandemic. It's an expensive time to be alive. Incomes are up, sure, but prices are up too, leading to things like one in 10 people in Toronto using food banks. So even though some big economic indicators are good, a lot of Canadians aren't feeling good because those indicators don't give the full picture. And the idea of a vibe session is how people feel really matters. That's called consumer sentiment, how people feel. And consumer sentiment is a huge part of GDP growth, how the economy is growing. Bad vibes can also be a feedback into policy decisions. Inflation expectations heavily influence central banks around around the world to make choices about rate hikes. Inflation is falling compared to last year, but core inflation is still higher than central banks want it to be. And here's the weird part. Canadian consumers still think inflation is far higher than it really is. That's important because people's expectations around prices can drive inflation up. As the Wall Street Journal wrote, expected inflation is, in some sense, a self-fulfilling prophecy. If people expect it to continue, they might raise prices for their businesses or ask for raises at their jobs, fueling continuing price increases. Rate hikes can also lead to more bad vibes. Nobody wants things to get more expensive, and it's a feelings feedback cycle. And so as we deal with all the bad stuff, we also have to manage the underlying vibes the best that we can. But that's incredibly difficult. People want a simple solution for why things are bad, and I do too, but things are bad and good for many different reasons. You can say things like, look, industrial production metrics are improving, but that doesn't always matter for how people feel. So consumer sentiment, the vibes, ultimately end up shaping the economy. This is what John Maynard Keynes and the concept of animal spirits talks about, George Soros and reflexivity, whatever, emotions matter. As Fisher Black wrote in a famous paper called Noise, I think that price level and rate of inflation are literally indeterminate. They're whatever people think they will be. They are determined by expectations, but expectations follow no rational rules. 
so we can talk about economic indicators all we want, but I'd argue the most important part of the economy is people and how people feel matters. So one of the things that is interesting to me is how, you know, we try to make this stuff as scientific as possible and seem like it's all measurable and data oriented. But so much of what happens with money has to do with how people feel. Yeah, it's um, an economy is just a group of people making a lot of transactions with each other. And, um, you know, the thing you're saying really gets at the heart of like why macroeconomics is so hard and why there's no grand theory about it. You know, the idea in macroeconomics is just that, like, in aggregate, you can understand and predict um, how big groups of people will behave by looking at other factors like the money supply and stuff like that. And there's a lot of different things that can impact people's decision. And some of them are like hard and easily measurable and some of them are softer. And I think, you know, the thing you're picking up is like one of the grand big questions uh, today, which is like, while most of the traditional indicators would suggest the economy is as strong as it's basically ever been, people are still really unhappy. And, you know, does that really matter? I mean, I think that's like the hard part about the macro environment right now. Like nobody does know what's going on. The policymakers don't really know. Everyone's sort of trying to figure it out with a toolkit that probably doesn't really work for the problems that we have. But I also do think it's just interesting, like Tyler was saying earlier, to really think about what are the indicators that actually matter to everyday humans? Like that stat Tyler mentioned earlier, how one in 10 people in Toronto are relying on a food bank. Um, out of some of those people who are like using a food bank to meet their needs right now, about a quarter of them are spending more than 100% of their income on housing. Like, why don't we look at metrics like that just as seriously as we look at how the stock market is doing, you know? So I feel like the big thing we're all wondering about is like, is there going to be a recession? And, you know, we're sort of teetering on the knife point in different ways. So what's what's the takeaway here, Kyle? Like, what's what's going to happen? Man, I wish I knew the answer to that question. I don't know if we're headed into a recession, but people are feeling pretty bad. My take is that, you know, over the last year, everything has started to line up to suggest that, like, a recession, meaning like a big cut in spending, hiring, rise in despair, is like less likely now than it was last year and probably pretty unlikely. But there are still real problems that people are struggling with. And so, you know, while we may not go into like a recession, you know, by the traditional definition, you know, I'm not sure how, you know, it's going to feel to people over the next, you know, couple of years. Kyle, let me ask you one more question, which is like, is there anything as sort of someone who explains things to people who don't necessarily know about economics? Is there anything in this subject that you feel like you wish people understood a little bit better? So it's it's not that I wish people understood certain things better. I wish that there was more opportunities for them to understand it. Like when we talk about inflation going down, people often think that that means prices going down. That's not what it means. It just means that prices aren't going up as fast. Right. Inflation going down means essentially your bread cost goes up from $2 to $2.11 rather than $2 and 25 cents. Yeah, exactly. And so I think it's not that I wish people understood certain things. I wish that there was better opportunities to educate people on what they need to know to understand the system that they live in. All right. Thank you, everybody. And uh, Kyla, what did we learn this week? 
So we learned that Canada Goose isn't keeping people warm like it used to. Some companies get rich on taking money from other companies. One of the things that really matters for how we interpret the economy is the vibes. And Devin needs a blood boy. Great. Thanks. Okay, that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. We will see you next Tuesday. And if you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple or Spotify or wherever you want. It really helps. This show is sponsored by Well Simple and made by me, Devin Friedman, Kat Angus, Matt Caraz, Sarah Rieger, Kyla Scanlon, with Flora Lichtman, Jared Sullivan, and Greg Tharp. Fact-checking by Brennan Doherty. Theme music by Andy Huckvale. Engineering by Veronica Rodriguez. See you next week. TLDR podcast is offered by Wellsimple Media Incorporated and is for informational purposes only. The content in the TLDR podcast is not investment advice, a recommendation to buy or sell assets or securities, and does not represent the views of Wellsimple Financial Corporation or any of its other subsidiaries or affiliates. Wellsimple Media Incorporated does not endorse any third-party views referenced in this content. More information at wellsimple.com slash TLDR.